Um, If you have a Bible tonight, you can open it to Exodus chapter 12 and the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. And so you could kind of throw a bookmark in Luke 22 and open up to Exodus chapter 12 tonight. Now, the Christian faith, as you know, is not one of ceremonial rituals and the keeping of holy days and such like things as that. And we also know that we have no command of scripture or uh, edict or precept that demands that we meet like this on this occasion, on this night. But we also know that Good Friday, the three days between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday are the most important days in all of existence. All of creation, the entirety of the purpose for the existence of man, the reason for all of the word of God And all of God's interaction with planet Earth all revolve around and stand upon the three days between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. That is the cross and the crucifixion of Christ to the resurrection from the dead. That is the epicenter for the reason behind all that exists is the cross of Jesus Christ and then the resurrection of Christ from the grave. And every day that existed before that was looking forward to those three days. And every day since has been looking back upon those three days. And so, though we aren't observing a holy day, and though we're not commanded to meet like this, tonight we gather to commemorate and to remember and to reflect upon the cross of Jesus Christ, and all that it meant to us. Now, what we discover as we look at the scriptures is that there was no coincidence in the timing or the circumstances that surrounded the cross of Christ and all that entailed. But what we realize when we look at the Bible, we see that every detail of the cross and the events leading up to it were carefully calculated in the conference room of heaven before time even began. You see, just like tonight, we're all here and we're remembering a special day. We're keeping Good Friday, if you would, as we remember the cross of Christ. Well, so also, the Jews that were around in Jesus' day they would be gathering tonight as well. On this very night, the anniversary of this night and what it represents to us, they would be commemorating too. They would be reflecting upon and remembering and commemorating an event that happened some 1,500 years prior to the birth of Christ. What was it? It was the Passover. It was the time right before the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt. There was an event that took place. There was a time where God intervened with the affairs of men. 
in such a way that they would remember it forever. And, and so they would keep that night, you know, there. And what we realize is that it's not a coincidence that Good Friday or the time that Christ was offered upon the cross happened at the very time that they were remembering the Passover that had happened some 1,500 years ago. Now, what's the connection between the Passover that happened in Moses' day and the cross that we remember tonight, the cross that, of course, Jesus hung upon as he bore the sin of the whole world? What's the relationship between the two? And why is it significant that Good Friday, the thing that we remember tonight, falls upon that day. Well, I've asked you to open to Exodus chapter 12 in your Bible, and I want to look at this this Passover, this thing that happened there in those days, and maybe we can discover something about the cross of Christ and why it's significant, why it's important to us. Now, you recall that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that he was going to make of them a great and a mighty nation. But when God gave them that promise, he also told them that in the formation stages of being made into a great and mighty nation, they would suffer as slaves in a land that didn't belong to them for a period of 400 years. And so the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they became slaves in the land of Egypt for 400 years, and they became a multitude a congregation three million strong in the throes of Egypt under the bondage of the Pharaoh. But the time now as we come to Exodus chapter 12 has come for their deliverance. They're going to be set free from that bondage. They're going to be redeemed, if you would, by the mighty hand of God. But in this chapter... Moses is instructed to institute a most interesting ritual. Something that they were, would do, a picture that they would be painting with their actions, and then something that they would keep. So, so what is it that they would do? What is this ritual that they would have to perform? Well, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, notice with me, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So notice there right off the bat that this event, this thing that God is about to do is so huge that it's going to reset the calendar. That no matter what they had done previously as far as measuring time and keeping months and observing a calendar, that all goes now and it starts over afresh with this month being the beginning of months to you. So the calendar is reset. And he says in verse 3, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, According to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. 
Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. So he tells him that the central focus of this event, this action, is going to be a lamb. And they would understand that the significance of the lamb was that it was a sacrifice. The transferring, the substitution of guilt from a man onto an innocent animal and that that sacrifice would then be slaughtered and in so doing, the guilt, the penalty for the sin of the man would be placed upon the innocent lamb. And that was what this lamb was. It was a sacrifice. It was a substitute. It was the sin of the man being placed upon the innocent lamb. And so it would be a lamb. But notice that it isn't just, excuse me, it isn't just that it would be a lamb. But notice what it says there in verse 5. He says, your lamb is that it would be personal, that it isn't generic. It isn't as though there was just, well, well, that, there's the lamb over there and, and, and we go through this each year and we slit the throat of the lamb and we go through the motions of this ritual. But no, 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 this is your lamb. Meaning that you have to, in this process, take ownership of the fact that you are not right. That something has to be done about your guilt, about your sin, about your problem. And so the lamb that would be a sacrifice has to also be your lamb. That you identify with it. That you take ownership of what's happening to that lamb and realize that it's not happening because of your neighbor. Or because of the generations that went before. Or because of what's going on in the leadership of the nation. Or even just because it says that's what we're supposed to do. But it's because you're responsible for what happens to that lamb. You, personal. It's personal. And then notice there also what it says in verse 5 is that your lamb is to be perfect. He says it shall be without blemish. It has to be perfect. That the standard, if there's going to be a substitution for sin, if my guilt is going to be placed upon an innocent substitute, then the standard is that that substitute has to be perfect. It can't have any blemish. There could be nothing wrong with it. There could be nothing wherein that lamb needs to die. It's missing an eye or it only has three legs or it bumps into walls or, you know, it's missing some chromosomes or something. No, no, no. The lamb had to be perfect. And so it was a sacrifice. It was personal. It was perfect. But now notice what they would have to do. An interesting thing in verse six. He says, and you shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month. Now, he said, back up in, where was it? Verse 3, he said, you're to take the lamb in the 10th day. So they take the lamb on the 10th day, and he says, you're to keep it up until the 14th day. What that means is that they would literally select the lamb perfect and without blemish to the best of their ability, observing it there among the flock. And then they would take it and it would go into their house with them. For four days, from the 10th until the 14th, that lamb would be with them in the house. You say, well, why would they do that? Well, why would they take a, a, a barn animal, a 
you know, livestock and, and bring it into the house with them. Why would they do that? Two reasons. Number one, to identify with it. You see, they would bring that lamb out of its place where it belonged and it would come into their world. It would come into their house and it would dwell among them for those four days. And they would become familiar with it. I remember a long time ago, I taught a home Bible study in the home of a woman who adopted a lamb to take care of it short term. And I remember what that was like. She lived in an apartment and she kept it in the bathtub. And it was so fun to go there on the Monday nights that we would have the Bible studies and our kids would come and they would play with the lamb. They would pet it. It was just this little thing. And we took pictures of it and pretended we were shepherds. And it was just, it became, it literally became a pet to these people. And can you imagine what that would be like in those days if you were there in your house and your kid, they see the lamb. I mean, that's the center of attention. And so it would come into your world and it would become a part of your life for those four days. But not just to identify with the lamb, but also for the purpose of inspection. See, it was so important that that lamb be without blemish. That it have no, you know, problems. That they would have those four days, that they would be with it, that they could really see, wow, this really is the cream of the crop. That there's no blemish, there's nothing wrong with this. So for four days, it would be with them in the house. And then, after the four days, he says there at the end of verse 6, He says, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it. And notice that it says it there. It's supposed to say it because it's not plural. It's singular. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And so the lamb would then be slain. They would have to go through with the deed. Their sin, their guilt would have to be placed upon this innocent substitution and this lamb that they had become attached to. That was a part of their life that had come into their world would be slain and it had to be slain. There was no other choice. There was no other way. And then they would have to do two more things. And here it is in verses 7 and 8. Notice. It says, and they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts And on the upper doorpost, the lentil, of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. So they would have to take the blood. After slaying this lamb, they would have to dip something, hyssop or otherwise, in the blood of this lamb. And they would have to go to the door of their house. And they would apply the blood to the two side posts of the door. And then the lentil overhead. And then, after applying the blood, that's one thing they would have to do, but it's only one of two. Here's the second, verse 8. It says, and they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. So not only would you have to apply the blood of the lamb personally to your house, but you would have to receive the lamb. It wasn't enough just to acknowledge that it existed. And it wasn't enough to be attached to it and be acquainted with it having been in your house. And it wasn't enough to grieve over the lamb, the fact that it had to die for you even though it was perfect and innocent. That wasn't enough. Is that they had to receive it. 
It had to be assimilated into who they were, a part of their being. It had to come inside and be a part of them. And that was necessary. That was important that it wasn't external. It wasn't facts. They weren't just singing to the lamb. They weren't just thanking the lamb. They weren't building monuments and buildings and temples to the lamb, but they were receiving the lamb. That was the purpose of it. And as long as the lamb was external, outside, it couldn't do for them, in them, what it was meant to do. But it was in receiving of it that the work was fulfilled. And so you say, well, why? Why did they have to go through this? Why did God give this ritual to Moses and have them do this on the night of their deliverance? What was the reason? Skip with me to verse 12. God says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token, a sign upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. The reason why it was necessary is because judgment was coming. Because God was about to intervene in the affairs of men and interrupt the lives even of his people. And that there was no way to avert the judgment of God except for one thing, the blood that the death angel was going to pass over them. Listen, the death angel passes over all men. Maybe not in one night in Egypt, but one night for all of us, the death angel comes. And when the death angel comes, there's only one thing that matters. It's the blood. When I see the blood, I'm so thankful that he didn't say, when I see the list of the good things that you did. (laughs) I'm so glad that he didn't say, when I see how devoted you are to me and to keeping my principles and my ways. When I see what you did in secret when no one else was looking. He said, when I see the blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over that house. And judgment will not come upon that house. Not because of anything that took place in that house, but because of what is applied on the house. The blood. And it's the only way that they could avert the coming judgment. God says, the death angel is coming. It's going to pass over all of Egypt. But when I see the blood. So they had to do it. And then verse 14, notice it says, and this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And you shall keep it. A feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And so he says, this isn't something that you're just going to do once and then it's over with. It's done. You've gone through the ritual. He says, but no, you're going to repeat this process each year. Well, why? Why would they have to do it each year? Would the death angel come each year? No. Two reasons. Here they are. Number one, so that they would never forget what the Lord did in setting them free from Egypt. That they would always remember how the Lord, by a mighty and outstretched arm, interrupted and intervened and redeemed and saved his people out of bondage. And they were to teach it to their children. And so the first reason was for remembrance, that they might always remember what the Lord did for them. 
But then the second reason, and probably even more important than the first, the second reason is because what they were doing year by year in going through this ritual, in performing this drama, in doing that each year, they were foreshadowing, picturing something that was yet to come. Something that was yet to be. And he wanted it to be always in their mind so that they would recognize it when the time came. You say, well, what was that? What was it that they were prefiguring, foreshadowing, looking towards in performing this ritual? Turn to Luke chapter 22. The ministry of Jesus is coming to a close. He's been working with and ministering alongside of the apostles, his disciples, for three and a half years. And he knows that his time has come. And it tells us there in verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were <coughs> and they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. And so this sets the stage for us. That the time of the Passover is coming near. And the preparations are being made. And Satan has entered Judas Iscariot. And everything is in place. And all the plans that were drawn up long before time are now about ready to go into action. And then it tells us here in verse 7. It says, then came the day. Now, we know for a fact that when Jesus walked this earth, he was a student of the Bible. It, it tells us that he confounded the scribes when he was just 12 years old. When he began his public ministry, he opened up the scroll and he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He quoted scripture left, right, and center in every part of his ministries. He was a student of the Bible. He did not, however, have access physically to a New Testament because it hadn't been written yet. But if he did, and, and that's an if, he did not, but I'm saying hypothetically, if he did, I can guarantee you one thing. Well, no, I can't, I can't guarantee. I'm, I'm pretty positive that if Jesus had a New Testament those words at the beginning of verse 7 would be highlighted in his Bible. They would be underlined. They would be highlighted. There would be notations in the margin. Because that's not just narrative. It's not just poetry. It's not just, you know, the first words to introduce the second thought. But that is the epicenter of the verse. Then 
came the day. It's not generic. It's the day. It's the day around which all things revolve that ever were created. It's the day that revealed to us the very purpose for why Christ was sent into the world. It's the day that hundreds of prophecies that were given, that were studied, that were known for the hundreds of years that had passed. It's the day that those would come to fulfillment, that they would finally make sense, that they would understand what they were about. And it was the day that Jesus would single-handedly seal the redemption and pay the price for millions of people that would believe on his name. It's not just any other day. It's the day. It says, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Now that's not talking about the Passover that they would take from the flock and that would live in their house. But that's talking about the Passover. The one that was pictured in the Passover. The one that the Passover was a prefiguring of. The one that the Passover was pointing the people of God to. The one that the Passover reminds us of this day that we look back and see what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. The Passover is none other than Jesus Christ himself. What do you mean? How how does Jesus become the Passover? How does the Passover prefigure Christ? Well, listen. His coming reset the calendar, didn't it? No matter what had happened prior to that time, now Jesus is on the scene and the years start over. It is an event that is so great, so large, that it resets time itself. Jesus was the lamb. Moses said, take a lamb from the sheep or from the goats. But what did John the Baptist say? See, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, he said, there has never been a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Why? You know what John's message was? John chapter 1, verse 29. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So he was the lamb of the sacrifice. What else did Jesus do? Jesus came into our world. Just as the lamb would come into the world of those homes throughout those years that they would keep the Passover, so Jesus came into our world. John chapter 1, verse 10 says that he was in the world and the world was made by him, but the world knew him not. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. He came into our world. Why? To identify with us. So that we could identify with him. So that we, by looking at him, might observe who the Father is. And that we might see the perfection in the the Lamb, the Son of God. And so he identified with us. Not only did he identify with us, but he was also inspected. From the 10th to the 14th, for those four days, he would be in, or they would be, those lambs, inspected to make sure that they were without blemish. Well, so also was Jesus. He was inspected four times. First, it was the Herodians, and the Herodians came to him, and they said, is it right for us to pay taxes or not? And Jesus, of course, he had the answer for them and he stumped them in the thing that they thought that they had stumped him. He turned it around on them and they backed off. They said, well, we're not going to mess with this guy. 
And then it was the Sadducees, and they rolled up their sleeves, and they came up to him, and they said, hey, do you believe in the resurrection? And they told him a story wherein they thought that they had him trapped. Oh, he's got he's to admit that there's no resurrection. Oh, but he had him. He said, hey, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And they said, oh, we didn't think about that. He got him. Well, now it's the Pharisees, and they say, we'll get him, we'll get him. We're going to get this guy to trip over his words. We'll stumble him, you know. And so the Pharisees come, and now the Pharisees, it's their turn. And so they say, hey, the scriptures, they talk about Christ, that he's the son of David. Well, if he's the son of David, then why does David call him his Lord? Oh, answer that one. It's a contradiction. You'll never get it. And Jesus got it. He turned it around on them, and they backed away, and they said, oh, we, we can't do this. And it says that no man after that dared ask him any more questions, except for one. There was one more. There was one more man that asked him questions. And as Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, the governor, the one who was an expert at evoking confessions from criminals, as he would bear the scourge of the cat of nine tails and the threat of crucifixion, Christ stood before him. And as it says in Isaiah, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, he opened not his mouth, and he caused Pilate to marvel so that Pilate would testify against himself out of his own mouth and say, I find no fault with this man. And he was inspected. He was inspected by every corner of humanity, the Herodians, the world, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious right and left, and Pilate himself the magistrates and governors, the rulers of this world. And they all came to the same conclusion that this is a lamb without blemish. He was inspected. And then he was slain. On the very day wherein the Passover would be killed, the very day that 1,500 years previously, God said this needs to be chronicled, this needs to be rehearsed, this needs to be played out year by year. On that very day, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain upon a cross. You say, why? Why would the perfect Lamb of God be slain? Why? Because judgment is coming. Because judgment is coming. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because the Bible says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Because God, who is light, cannot be in the presence of dark, which is sin. And a holy, righteous God must judge sin. But the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That God didn't desire to judge to see man sunk under the condition of his sin. But God desired to make a way wherein man could be forgiven. A substitute that would be worthy, able to bear the sin of man. But it would have to be a man. Couldn't be a lamb. It, It was impossible, the scripture says, that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. But it was possible that God himself could become a man. That he could live the perfect life. And that he could willingly take upon himself the sin of all of humanity. And then extend and say, whosoever will believe in me will not perish. But can have everlasting life. 
And so he did it because judgment's coming, but God didn't want us to die in our sins. The Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so God, by his own hand and through his own son, made a way wherein man could be spared from the judgment of God. You say, well, how, how do we take now the, the Passover picture and then apply it to us. Because they would take the blood of, of the lamb, literally, and, and they would put it upon the doorpost and the lentil, and then they would eat of the lamb. They would do that, but we don't keep the Passover. How do we do what they did? How do we avert this judgment? How does the lamb, the Passover lamb, how does it keep us from being judged? Here's how. Number one, first of all, is that the lamb must be received. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, To as many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God. To receive him. That you let him inside. See, there's many people that will associate with him. There's many people that appreciate him. There's many people that will study and learn of him. But the Bible says that you need to receive him. That you need to let him into your life. That he needs to become a part of who you are and that you become one with him. Not religiously, not having a relationship with the man upstairs or big daddy in the sky or whatever it is that people want to say that don't know him. But the Bible says that you have to receive him. That you invite him in in the same way that you would partake of the lamb. You would say, he would say, take of me. And you would say, yes, I receive you. And you receive Christ. And then the second thing you would do, you, that you must do, that we must do, is that we must apply the blood. We must apply the blood. See, they would take the blood. They would dip the hyssop in the blood of the lamb. And they would strike the two posts of the door. And then they would strike the lentil. And the blood from the lentil would drip down onto the threshold. And it would make the perfect picture of a cross. blood of the cross of Jesus Christ must be applied, appropriated to the count of the people that would call on his name and receive him. Why? Because the life is in the blood. And his desire is to impart his life to you. And so the blood must be applied because it's in the blood that atonement is made for sin. It's not in the Bible study. It's not in church membership. It's not in wearing a Christian t-shirt or doing Christian works or saying Christian words. But redemption is in the applying, the appropriating of the blood of the perfect Lamb of God upon the doorposts and the lentils of your heart. Because your sin separates you from a holy God. But his gift, the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, redeems us and brings us back into right standing with him. And so the blood must be applied to Christ. And that's what communion is all about. And so tonight we're going to take communion because, why? Because we want to receive the body. And we want to apply the blood, appropriate it to our lives. And that's what communion is all about. So the ushers can come at this time and hand it out. The musicians can, can, can come up here and we're going to take communion tonight. Isn't it interesting that it was on the very night that the Passover was fulfilled that the Lord's Supper was instituted? 
that it was the same night that the picture was fulfilled that Jesus gave us this new thing that we're to do. And that it's a model, a picture of the very thing that we're talking about, the receiving of the lamb and the applying, the appropriating of the blood. If you still have your Bible open, and if you can still see it, if you can't, that's okay. But in verse 14, it says this. (coughs) It says, and when the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said unto them, with desire, have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. See, he knew that this Passover was different than any other Passover. He knew that this was the day that the Passover spoke of and wherein it would be fulfilled. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then it says he took the cup. And he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. So he passes out the cup to his disciples and he says, divide this amongst yourselves. And then it says in verse 19, it says that he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so he took the bread, and he would hold it up in the presence of them all. And and he would use something very similar to what you're receiving right now as, as you're being handed the bread. The only difference is what they would have would be soft. But in every other way, it would be very much the same as what you're being handed there, the, the matzah, you know, because it keeps longer, you know. But the type of bread was full of symbolism. Because you see, it would be unleavened. It, it was spoken, it was specific that the bread of the Passover had to be unleavened bread. Why? Because leaven speaks of sin. And if the bread is a symbol of Jesus' body, Jesus was sinless. And so the bread would have to be without leaven. And so what you have in front of you is unleavened bread. It reminds us that Jesus was unblemished, that he was the sinless sacrifice, the one that was worthy to take the place of those that would call upon him. Not not only is it unleavened, but if you look at it, if you see it, you'll notice that it's striped. That the marks of baking are upon it, and it's striped. And just as Jesus, whose body was broken for us, he was also striped. As the whips of the flagellum came down upon his back, he was striped. And you'll see that it's also pierced. That there's tiny little holes in the bread all over the place. Why, it reminds us that he was pierced. That the nails went through his hands. And the nail went through his feet. That a crown of thorns was pressed into his head. That he was literally bled as a lamb as he hung there upon the cross. And it comes to our mind as we take the bread, as we recognize, as we see that it's striped, we see that it's pierced. And then if you look around the edges, you'll see that it's broken. That his body was broken. That the perfect life, the Lamb of God, the one who's filled with glory, 
the one who is without guile, the one who is perfect in every way, gave himself to be broken, not for us, not for Israel, not for the Pope or for Billy Graham. It was for you. Your face was in his mind. The number of hairs that are upon your head was known by him. Every day of your life that you would ever live would be known by him. Every act of rebellion, every sin, every failure, every frustration, he would see it all. Knowing all of that, he would still look at you personally and say, this is my body, broken for you. For you. Not for me. He doesn't get much out of the deal. But it would be broken for you. And finally, that bread is to be received. And don't do it yet. You see... As long as you hold that bread in your hand, it does you absolutely no good. It's just a cracker. And you could study it. You could pick it apart. You could dissect the meaning of the ingredients of it. You could get a guitar and you could sing songs to it and talk about how wonderful it is. You could build a shrine, spend millions of dollars in marble and gold. But as long as it's something that's outside of your physical body, that cracker, that bread does you absolutely no good at all. It does nothing for you. It's just matter. But you see, when you receive it, now it can edify. Now it becomes a part of you. Now it can give its life to you. The life that's in it can be now given to you, imparted to you. And so he says, take it. And the Bible says after dinner he took the cup. Verse 20. It says, likewise also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. The cup represents not the body anymore, but now the blood. Just as the lamb would be received, and then the blood would be applied, he hands them the cup, and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, and it represents the life that I'm giving away to you. But understand this, and many people miss this when it comes to this idea of applying the blood of Christ to our lives. He handed a cup. He took a cup, and he reached out his arm, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood. But in order for you to take that cup, it necessitates an exchange of cups. You see, it, it, it's, it's not just that you're taking the cup that is handed to you that possesses his life, but you are also at the same time giving him a cup. You're giving him the cup that's in front of you. See, just a few verses later, if you read on in Luke chapter 22, Jesus is going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he'll be there with three sleeping apostles. And he'll be in agony. 
The Bible tells us that he begins to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood because the, the passion, the cross, the suffering of it is coming upon his life. And it says three times he prays and he says these words. He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And three times he prays that prayer and you say, well, what cup? It's your cup. It's the cup that you filled in your lifetime. Started with original sin, the sin that you inherited without doing anything at all. And then over the span of your lifetime, as you filled that cup, you filled yourself, this vessel, with so many different things, things worthy of death, things worthy of the judgment of God, things that no one would ever want to drink, nor would they want to drink the penalty that those things would endure. And in Jesus giving the cup that was in front of him, the cup that contained the perfect, innocent, spotless blood that could give life, he also took the cup that you filled. And he said, Father, I don't want to drink this. If there's any other way that they can be saved, please. But guess what? He drank it. That tells me two things. It tells me, first of all, that there is no other way to be saved. There is no other way for you to be forgiven of your sins and to stand faultless before God Almighty. But that Jesus Christ takes your sin and that you take his cup. It also tells me that God loved you a whole lot because he drank a cup that he didn't want to drink so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be saved. You see, our blood, your blood and my blood, our blood was upon his head at the cross so that his blood could be upon our hearts for salvation. That's the exchange that took place in the cup. So he gives tonight to you To you and to me, he gives us the cup. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is the cup of forgiveness. It's the cup of salvation. It's the cup of a new beginning. It's a cup of fellowship, of knowing me, knowing my love in your life. It's a cup of intimacy, oneness, and communion. And he gives us that cup. I'd ask you to wait to partake of the communion. We're going to sing a song. And I want you to listen to the words of the song. Reflect upon what they're saying. And allow the Spirit of God to move upon your hearts. And after the song is over, we'll pray together and we'll all partake together. The Bible says, you know, tarry one for another. And so we'll partake. But sing the song and let the Lord just speak to your heart. Commune with Him as we sing. Thank you. 